ever been to a museum and thought, you know what this needs? More fucks. Then the Pile of Rocks Heritage Podcast is for you. Come with me, your host, Kira Lee, to lift the veil of heritage wankery, one episode at a time. Welcome to the rough draft of my podcast, Pile of Rocks. It is about heritage, and essentially it's pointing and laughing at the heritage wankers, to be quite frank. We've all seen them, we've all met them, scrounging about. To be fair, one of them's here, so there we go. So this episode is just kind of like a little introduction. So of course, as to start any good introduction, I'm just going to tell you there is no such thing as heritage. Objects and spaces they don't actually hold a value of heritage, you know, they're not intrinsically special because of what they are. Rather, any heritage value is applied by us. Um, It's applied by our knowledge, it's applied by experiences onto these objects and spaces. You could say it's effectively all in the head, and that is where we're going to start. More specifically, with a murder. There you go. So, in 1744, A certain gentleman named Eugene Aram uh, decides, you know what, bugger living here, I'm going to go to Kings Lynn, I'm going to have a nice teaching job and fuck my family. At the same time, rather mysteriously, his colleague Daniel Clark disappears. And it's not for 13 years that uh, his remains are found. At which point a so-called friend um, of Aram's testified and went, you know what it was him, it was him. And Aram, bless his cotton socks, decided that he could uh, represent himself in court and was effectively executed afterwards. So you're probably thinking, where where are you going with this? Number one, I really love true crime, so fuck you. Um, (laughs) Secondly, Eugene Aram's skull is a really good example of how heritage is dynamic and ever-changing, showing how we really do apply uh, what we think is important onto these objects. So 30 years after his death and gibbeting, a local doctor decided, you know what, I want that skull. And it's not quite of the time, but in 1832 they did a fantastic recreation of this. I'm going to share it with you now. The doctor sallied forth from the town of Nairsborough with a ladder on his shoulder and with the firm purpose of mounting the gibbet, detaching from the iron hoop which bound it the skull of Eugene Aram. The gibbet clung to its own property with wonderful tenacity, but the ardour of the doctor became a furor and he succeeded in extricating the skull, almost at risk to his own head. I'm sorry, I love that bit. It's just so, just this doctor is like, I'm going to get a fucking skull, I'm going to get it. It's just brilliant. Why did he do this? Why did he decide that this ancient skull was the best thing in the world? Part of it was the glamour of owning such a skull. Um, Aaron was nationally notorious for over a good hundred years with the crime and its resolution being so dramatic. You know, it's that that social kudos of owning it in a time where penny dreadfuls and sensationalism were the thing. A few years later, in around about uh, 1838, it was passed on to a colleague, uh, Dr. James Onglow, I think that's how you say it, a budding phrenologist. For those of you who don't know, phrenology is the fantastically scientific um, and not at all racist or discriminatory pseudoscience where very charismatic lecturers uh, would 
bring in piles of skulls and be like, look, this is like you, this is your future, this is like your character. So of course, the head of a really famous murderer would have been a massive attraction for somebody who's trying to get into the world of phrenology. As phrenology eventually died and became craniology, slightly less dubious but still fantastically discriminatory, the skull was actually given to the Royal College of Surgeons by some rather embarrassed relatives who then shoved it in a closet, basically. Yeah, if you want to know where everything is in a museum, look in the closets. Trust me. Eventually, in 1993, the year I was born, it was passed on to the Lynn Museum in King's Lynn. So though it occupied many sort of times and spaces and uses, they all required one thing. Uh, They required the heritage of the school to be authentic. Without it, the school wouldn't have had the glamour of infamy and would not have been portrayed in art and literature all the way up until things like the Jeeves and Worcester books. It would not have had the credibility and pull necessary for the dramatic field of phrenology. And when it no longer had a place as a curi- in a curiosity cabinet or in a lecture hall, it was sent to museums as an artefact of our social development and a symbol of what we often perceive to be our crueler times. Objects have power and authentic objects even more so. They influence the way we see, our, uh, see and understand our past our present and our future. If only certain groups get to deal with and display these objects to essentially define their values, then we're only going to see certain stories, we're only going to get certain narratives. The best way to think of it is heritage is very much like money. It's beneficial to all, but there's only so much and frankly only privileged actually get to have fun with it. And it's because of this we get ideas of what should be, well what heritage should be, such as authorised heritage discourse and the World Heritage Convention. And you get wonderful ideas such as the International uh, Council of Monuments and Sites, which fantastically said, Every means must be taken to facilitate the understanding of a monument without ever distorting its meaning. Okay, so... (laughs) Right. Who defines the meaning? How do they know best how to present this? And frankly, is it even fucking possible? Look at Stonehenge. It has so many uses, so many people looking in and having values in it. How can you only have one person coming up and being like, well, this is how we're going to show it. This is how it's going to stay forever and ever and ever. A monument that's famously been put up, taken down, put up, taken down, fallen over, put back up again, cemented, all this over the last, what, few millennia? It's not possible. And if you only have a certain group, you're only going to get certain narratives. And you really see this with Eugene Zaram's head. We've only seen it in certain narratives. The fact is, he was actually a very intelligent man from a poor working class family who was, surprisingly, on the verge of making a breakthrough in Celtic languages. But, I mean, certain reasons, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but we only see him as a murderer, and that's only because that's what we value in the heritage. Thank you, guys. That was sort of what I thought it was. Hi everyone, Kira here. As you probably noticed, this is at best a fledgling episode that I tested out on a live audience. If you liked what you heard, tune back in in April to listen to a good old bitch about what happens when the World Heritage Convention gets involved in politics. 
huge, huge thank you and shout out to Hannah, Paul and Haley, and the awesome audience at Rough Draft in the Y Theatre in Leicester. If you're about on the last Tuesday of each month in Leicester, do do check them out. It's a brilliant opportunity to see what artists are up to for free. So definitely check out Rough Draft. In the meantime, thank you so, so much for listening. And if you want and you want to have a chat, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Pile of Rocks Pod. Research and production by myself. The theme music is Summon the Rock by Kevin MacLeod. And thanks always, everyone, for tuning in. 